So today, um, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, let me pray for God to, to speak to us. Lord, as we uh, open your word, um, I pray that you would meet with us and you would feed us. And I pray that this passage uh, would not just be an intellectual exercise, but you would feed our souls. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, and here we're going to take a look at chapter 9, 10 through 17. It says, on their return, you say return from what? Well, if you remember, Jesus sent, last week we talked about Jesus sending out the apostles on a mission to cast out demons and to preach and to heal. Now they're coming back. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, if if your pastor goes to Israel, he's got to show you a map of where this is, okay? So, um, actually, they believe it's up here, a little bit north, Bethsaida, uh, House of Hunting or uh, House of Fishing, um, they think that the, the Sea of Galilee actually had extended all the way up to here, so it would have been a fishing village. Now, the funny thing is they built a, um, a, a church here in Tabga uh, called the House of Multiplication or the Church of Multiplication, and they claim that that is where he did the multiplying. Um, our tour guide said... Um, Constantine's mother was the greatest archaeologist who ever lived. She went to Israel, and whatever she was looking for, she found. And uh, she claims that she found that this is where Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, but we know it's really here. But there's a church there. It's a very nice church. Um, so that's where, where we're talking about. They, they went to Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. From John's gospel, we learned that there was a little boy there that's all. He had his lunch, but they had no other food, right? unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, so add the women, add the children, could have been 20,000 people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. You can see the disciples starting to scratch their head. Why? Why? What are we, what, what's going on here? And they did so. And had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. By the way, every time Jesus eats, even at the Last Supper, he gives thanks for the food. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. And how many uh, apostles were there? Per, not, not only a miracle of feeding 
10, 20,000 people, but exactly to the person. Even the leftovers are put to perfect use here. Now, here's a question. What are we to get out of this miracle? What is the point of this miracle? Which is a question you should ask. I I don't think Jesus went around just doing willy-nilly miracles to impress people. There's a point. Here's something else. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, other than Christ's death and resurrection. This is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. So that tells you this is important. They all felt it was important to put this miracle in their Gospels. So what's the point? Now, on a real cursory reading, you would say, well, Jesus is a miracle worker. He's from God. He uses the power of God. He's a miracle worker. But that's, that's kind of shallow. Right? Others would say, oh, it's about the little boy sharing his lunch, and you should share your lunch too. Right? How many times do we hear children's, there's whole children's curriculum about share your lunch. It's a nice lesson. I don't think it's about that, though. Others would say, Jesus fed the poor, we should feed the poor. That's, that's great, right? But I, I don't think that is the point of the story. What's the point of this miracle? Well, we don't, we don't need to speculate. We don't need to wonder because in John's gospel, he takes this little story and it expands on it to 66 verses. Right? 66 verses of, of, of uh, commentary and filling us in on what we're supposed to get out of this story. And as usual, it is not about anything other than Jesus. It's not about the little boy who shared his lunch. It's not about feeding the poor, as important as that is. What does Jesus say about this miracle in John's gospel? And by the way, if you don't get what the point was, don't worry. Neither did the apostles, neither did the people who actually ate the fish and the loaves. There was confusion around this. In fact, Jesus actually points out... um, their confusion, and he kind of rebukes them because not only were they confused, but they followed him for the wrong reason. Let me, let me point out two places where he does this. In John six twenty six, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you... Now, this is, this is he's already fed them, and then the next day they follow him around the lake to find him a second time, and he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You know why most of them were following him? Free lunch. It's it's as crass as that. Let's find that guy who gave us free food yesterday. It was pretty good. The fish fry. You get your little bread with that, you eat that, and... And they were like, That's a, let's find that guy again and get some more free food. You know, um, 
there have always been those who are into the health-wealth gospel. The, the health-wealth gospel is basically this. It's seeking after Jesus, not to find Jesus, but to find what Jesus can give you materially. Right? Health-wealth gospel is, let's, let's follow that guy for the food. But there was another motive that many of them had, and it was a political motive. Earlier, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He didn't want to be made king, but they wanted to make him king. And again, there has always been those who follow Jesus for political reasons, or they try to incorporate Jesus into their political agenda. And in this case, their political agenda was, let's get a king to overthrow Rome. This is our guy, plus free food and free health care, because he heals people and he feeds people. Let's get him on our agenda. And he hides, because he not, he's not going to be co-opted into anybody's political agenda. So, They didn't understand what this was all about. The apostles are confused about what this is about. But, like every miracle, the miracle points to him. It teaches us something about him. So here is where Jesus tells them what they're to get out of the miracle. John 6, 33. For the bread of God... Now, uh, interesting... Uh, Jason shared the story about the manna that God provided. He provides bread and he gets them talking about the manna. Gets them talking about the bread of God. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm the bread of God. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread Always. Again, now they're stuck on the, uh, they're, they're equating uh, the bread of God with the manna that Moses brought, that God brought through Moses, or with the fish and loaves that he just gave them yesterday. And, and he's saying, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm the bread of God. Right? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, in faith, right? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This bread miracle points to me, the bread of life. The fish and the loaves and the manna that God provided in the desert may satisfy physical needs, but I'm the only one who can satisfy true deeper needs. Now, he, he gives us the key that the bread is, is pointing to him, but he knows that most of them are only following him for surface reasons. So, he purposely extends this metaphor about him being bread to offend them 
to sift out the wheat from the chaff, from those who are truly following him for right reasons and for those who are following him for surface reasons. So watch this. Here's what he does. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And, and right there you hear the crowd go, <gasps> what? The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now what I find interesting is Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, that's a metaphor. Remember the difference between a simile and a metaphor that you learned? In... He doesn't rescue himself here. He presses the metaphor even further, and he says, it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he lets them sit there in their confusion. And then it says, most of them turned their back and left him. Right. Now, what does he mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Now, many people say, well, that's what you do at communion. You uh, the bread turns into his body. The wine turns into his blood. And at communion, you eat his flesh and you drink his blood. Okay. Um, a lot of problems with that. One, there's nothing going on here about communion. In fact, if there's any referent to bread, it's to manna back in the Old Testament. And he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. But the bigger problem is, is this. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. There's a, there's a continuing theme in John's Gospel. And that is Jesus throws out spiritual metaphors and people misunderstand them, and they take them in a woodenly literal way. So in John chapter 2, he's standing at the temple, and he goes, hey, I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, what? It's taken 46 years for Herod to build this temple. How is he going to do it? And then John writes, he was talking about his body. And then in chapter 3, he goes to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he says, I tell you, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And Nicodemus takes it in a woodenly literal way. Yeah, I got to be born a second time? And then the woman at the well, he says, you've given me some water. If you had asked me, I would give you living water. And she goes, well, where's the bucket? So there's this theme of him speaking in metaphorical language, they're confused. They take it in a woodenly, literal way. Now, do we really think that in John chapter 6, he stops using metaphorical language, and now he's speaking concretely for the first time. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Follow the pattern of the author, John. Okay? 
What does it mean to eat his flesh and to drink his blood? Now, um, embedded in John 6 is the decoder ring. You guys ever have a decoder ring? Yes. You, you, get, you turn the dial and the, the, uh, the alphabet lines up uh, with, you know, it's, it, it, it lines up with another alphabet and then you translate whatever the letter is on the paper to the decoder ring. You ready for the decoder ring? Here it is. John 6, 54, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So whatever eating and drinking his flesh and blood is, it, it results in eternal life. Look what he says earlier, though. John six forty seven. Whoever believes has eternal life. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Yes, it's a reference to the cross. But it's also a reference to believing. Eating and drinking Jesus is believing in Jesus. By the way, being born again is believing in Jesus. Drinking living water is believing in Jesus. Eating his flesh and blood is Believing in Jesus. In fact, if there's any question, the word believe appears eight times in this chapter alone. And, trivia question, how many times does the word believe appear in John's Gospel? Anybody have a clue? Teresa, I always like to ask you these questions. How many times does the word believe appear? 90, that's crazy big. 69. Okay, 60. John's gospel is about believing. Eating and drinking Jesus is believing in Jesus. Okay? Now, uh, so, so I've kind of demystified this whole thing for us. But, but let me kind of take this in a different direction now. When you believe in Jesus, it should produce in us satisfaction. Right? When you eat, go to Red Lobster and you get the, the fish, and then what are those rolls? The uh, biscuits? Cheese, garlic, and biscuits, right? Ch yeah, cheddar baked biscuits and... and uh, Fish of the day. Oh, now when you eat that, you feel satisfied, don't you? And you go, well, I've believed in Jesus for 25 years, and I don't know this satisfaction that you're talking about. So let's, let's pound on that for, for a little bit here. Here's what what some people do. They go, I already believed in Jesus. I believed in him uh, growing up. I prayed the prayer at VBS. Well, I got saved way back when. I, I believe in Jesus. But where's that satisfaction? Now, let me give you a little bit of knowledge of Greek to be dangerous. Okay, um, In English... The present tense 
refers to current time. Okay, I am preaching means I'm doing that right now. But in Greek, the present tense is the tense of continual activity. So, when Jesus says, whoever feeds, you could translate it, whoever continually feeds on my flesh and continually drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever continually believes has eternal life. In fact, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever continually believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What I want to encourage us to do is not have a faith that's historical, but to have a living, active, continual faith. So, so let, me, let me talk about how that word faith or belief um, can apply in different ways. But all of them are not some past event, but they're, they're to be what you're currently doing right now. And I think that can change your whole life. It's a continual, present tense faith in Jesus. So, here we go. Three kinds of active believing. Now, we're going to celebrate communion. And kind of the primary thing we're doing uh, is is we are exercising forgiving belief or belief in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, let me read this verse. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, um, some people are confused by this verse because you get the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You understand that the moment you first placed your faith in Jesus, you were justified. And what that means is, um, at that moment in time, all your past, present, and future sins are covered, forgiven, and Christ's righteousness is given to you. It's a done deal, right? And a lot of people don't understand that. They don't have the joy of of basking in the truth of justification by faith alone. But most of you get that, and you've got another problem. Your problem is, if I was justified 25 years ago and all my sins were forgiven, why do I need to confess my sins now? So a lot of Christians who are well-taught and understand justification by faith alone, have this other problem. Confessing their sins to the Lord is not a, not a, a reality in their life. Right? And we talked about this, I think, last week at Connection Time, that, that there's two things you need to understand. One, when you place your faith in Jesus... 
you were justified. You, your sins are forgiven, and you are legally adopted into the family of God. And that's all that legal stuff and the transfer of righteousness and the transfer of your sins to the cross. And that's all true. That's what justification is. But when you believed in Jesus, not only were you justified, you entered into a very real relationship with God. And just like any relationship, in a real relationship, there are problems that come up. There are things that break fellowship. Not not that you lose your salvation or you lose your justification, but there are barriers. Any of you ever have this happen in marriage? (laughs) Yeah, you don't lose your your, uh, marital status, but tension creeps in and there are times you need to clear the air and say, hey, will you forgive me? I'm sorry, I was a jerk. I think I said that once, maybe. (laughs) What this is talking, this is not talking about justification, 1 John 1.9, it's talking about your relationship with God. Imagine what growth would take place in your life if every day you prayed. I, don't, I prayed the Lord's Prayer, and I don't mean, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I don't mean saying the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I mean, what if every day you actually thought through each element of the Lord's Prayer, and when you got to, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, you stopped and you said, you know, since I prayed that last, Lord, I want to confess my sin. Not because I've lost my salvation, not because uh, I need to earn anything, but because I don't want there to be a barrier in my relationship not only would you grow in your relationship with the Lord, I think we would all become far more sensitive to the sin in our life because we don't want to be there tomorrow doing the same one again and again and again. Right? So, this is a discipline that we should do regularly to restore that relationship with the Lord. And He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive you. And it's all done by faith. By by taking Him, by believing that, that He will be faithful to this promise. So when you come to the Lord's Supper today, confess your sins. And some of you say, yeah, but you don't know what I... Paul was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. He will forgive you when you confess from the heart. But let me me mention a second type of faith uh, or belief. There's forgiving belief. Then there's, I'm going to just call this sovereign belief. You remember last week? Was it last week we talked about the storm? Or was it two weeks ago? Jesus is in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up and the waves are, are in the boat. And um, 
the apostles are like, we're going to die. And they wake up Jesus, and he calms the storm, and then he says, where's your faith? Now, this time the word faith is being used a little bit differently than trusting him for salvation or for forgiveness. Here, faith is dealing with trusting that he is in sovereign control even when life seems out of control. It's not, again, the magical health, wealth, superpower gospel where if you just had more faith, there would never be any storms. No. He's challenging them to place their faith in him in the midst of the storm. And I quoted John Bloom. I'm going to quote him again. Jesus rebuked them for fearing the lesser power, the storm, over the greater power, him. And this gets to the nub of the issue for our fears too, because who or what you believe is most powerful will be master of your thoughts and actions. So some of us need to come to the table and exercise belief. We, we eat and we drink, Jesus, by exercising faith that the waves that are crashing in your boat right now are not more powerful than him. Right? Your faith is in the sovereignty of God that Romans 8, 28 is true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not that everything that happens to you is good. There are waves. I don't like getting splashed with cold water. I don't like that. It's irritating. Makes me wonder where the Lord is when that happens. And he's saying... Um, even this is under my sovereign control. Where's your faith? Every trial is an opportunity to grow, to flex our muscle, to exercise our muscle in the sovereignty of God. All right? Let me talk about one last kind of faith or belief, sanctifying belief. What's sanctifying mean? It means he's growing us up. He is making us more like Christ. Now, I have uh, Romans 8:28, which we just read, okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Then, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and we all get all freaked out about that word predestined. Hey, it's there, all right? Deal with it. It's predestined. You're, you're, you're predestined. But here's the question. What? Are you predestined for? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's stop right there. The goal is not just to walk around predestined. The goal is to take confidence that he's making you more and more like Jesus. You could put it this way. Um, 
He has a personal obstacle course built for you to make you more and more like Jesus. I, I, don't you wish you could be more likely Jesus just by reading a book? Oh, do this and you do this. Good, got it. And then you become more like Jesus. Now, we are to read the Bible. We are to, to, there, there's the study. There's the mental activity that God uses to grow us up. But he also has this individual obstacle course built for you to make you more and more like Christ. And sanctifying faith is trusting that the uncomfortable pain you're in right now is not out of his control, and it's not given to you to punish you and to hurt you. It's to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. As James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your, there's that word faith, produces steadfastness, it makes you solid, it makes you stronger, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the perfection and the completeness is the image of Jesus. So, all that comes out of Jesus feeding the 5,000. How do we get there? He feeds the 5,000. He says, don't get caught up in the bread. I'm the real bread. You got to eat me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? Yeah, the, this, the code breaker is that means believe in me. I am here to satisfy your deepest needs and longings. How do we do that? You, you do that by believing in me. What kind of belief? Forgiving belief that my flesh and blood was given on the cross to cover your sins and you're forgiven. There's sovereign belief. When the waves are in your boat, you don't freak out. You trust that I am in control even of that. And sanctifying belief. Why would God allow all that? Because he's working all things together for your good and he's conforming you into his image. 